Hi, I'm Chinny. I'm Astrid. And welcome to It's a Continent, the podcast that decolonizes history one story at a time. So we're here to challenge the common misconception that Africa is a country and essentially appreciate the identity of each nation. Um, and through each episode, we'll be exploring key historical moments which have shaped the continent. Hello, hello, welcome. I'm feeling very zen today. How are you doing? <laughs> feeling calm and collected. Enjoy the bank holiday actually saw other humans so yeah good times did you get up to anything exciting well I've learned that what you have to do when you go to eat outside which is what we've got to do at the moment is that it's BYOB which is bring your own blanket that's that's really that's the game changer that I've learned so far damn that's a good one I did not think that when I went for my first meal out we booked it weather was good and everything and then it just started chucking it down bearing in mind we'd ordered like six cocktails I had a burger, chips. I was ready to demolish. And then I'm just eating there, like looking at everyone to be like, we're having a good time, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And just like got all this rain. Like, yeah, (laughs) this is fine. This is not, it's normal to eat a burger that's completely drenched. This is normal. This is. (laughs) sometimes it's okay to like leave the social situation and stay dry but you know not long to go hopefully not long. but yeah no it's going good big announcement we did the announcement yeah, but done it, now yeah. we're all up we're waterstones amazon we're so excited we're yeah, so excited so excited you can now pre-order it's a continent the book and the links for that will be in the episode show notes amazing african pride are you starting us off Yes, this week's African Pride, we are heading off the mainland to Mauritius. Kan Chan Kin, a musician, artist and activist, or as he puts it, artivist. Love it. Love these made up words. It's great. He's currently preserving his country's island paradise by turning rubbish into musical instruments. I don't know if you ever went through a phase of using a tissue box and elastic bands to make a guitar. No, I never did that. That was my childhood. (laughs) (laughs) No, No, I did. I can actually. I know I did did learn how to play a real guitar eventually. Okay, that's good. Imagine being in like music lesson for the first time. Everybody's like, make sure you bring in your guitars and everything. You're just out there with a tissue box. (laughs) Where are the frets? There are no frets. Wasn't it Earth Day quite recently? Look at us. You picking an African pride that's topical. Love it. Yeah, always coming with environmentalists. And in Can's words, he says, I think trash is a problem in Mauritius. So this is why people like me, citizens of Mauritius, have to get their hands dirty to get the job done. So he builds his instruments in a process called upcycling. And he performs throughout the island with these instruments, educating on what really happens when you throw your rubbish away. Doesn't just kind of disappear. It does end up in tons of landfill, unfortunately. And in 2019, Can delivered a TED Talk where he displayed and played his instruments. And he's also launched a DIY series called Trash to Music. Another reason why this is so important is based on an interesting fact that I found out about the Mauritius. So it's only just under 30 miles wide, that's 45 kilometres, and 40 miles long, 65 kilometres, with a population of 1.2 million people. So, (laughs) I mean, yeah. So it it is actually the most densely populated African nation. So no, it's not Nigeria. And you never know, this could come up in a pub quiz. 
you never know. You've got the facts right here. Love it. Got the facts. So managing such a small area combined with a booming tourist industry, which of course would contribute even more rubbish, emphasises how important it is to maintain and preserve this island paradise. Amazing. Really good. Good to see all this hard work going into it and just teaching people about the environment. Honestly, it's really important. And Mauritius' very own Greta, well, actually not Greta Thunberg. She does yeah, this is the thing. We need, to, we need to stop going, oh yeah, it's the... Yeah, no, this like, is... You know, we have our own Gretas, do you know? Like... Yeah, we, yes. He, he's doing his own thing. Greta isn't out here creating musical instruments and practicing <laughs> things, so... Absolutely. Right, so where are we this week? Where are you taking us? Well, this week we are in Ceuta and Melilla. Did you know that the European Union, aka the EU, has land borders with the African continent? Okay. (laughs) 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 Well, this was news to us. There are two cities in Morocco that are enclaved, so that means surrounded by the rest of Morocco on the coast. These cities, Ceuta and Melilla, are 250 miles apart and actually they're part of Spain even though they're in Morocco. Ceuta sits opposite Gibraltar, a British territory, so yes Britain still has colonies within Spain and Melilla is further east along the Moroccan coast. But what is Spain doing in Morocco in the first place and what are the wider implications and why have the two cities also been described as Europe's dirty secret? Apart from colonisation of course. Mm-hmm. Let's dig in. Let's do this. We're back to the 15th century. So as you know, you've got to get in early with laying claims to territory that isn't yours. <laughs> the top tips of how to, yeah. how to annex territories. <laughs> Tip yeah. one, make sure that I do this early. It's all about preparation. Melilla came under Spanish rule in 1497, whilst Ceuta was seized by nearby Portugal in 1415 then, as part of the Lisbon Treaty, handed over to Spain in 1665. The two port cities were trading posts set up between Europe and Africa, offering protection for Spanish ships. Morocco disputed Spanish claims to Ceuta early on, as in 1861, Spain declared war in the region and ended up acquiring more land in the process. By 1884, Spain annexed Morocco's coastal areas. Not long after, in 1904, France and Spain began carving out areas of influence within Morocco, with the Treaty of Fez bringing about a Franco-Spanish agreement in 1912. France had the majority of Morocco, while Spain occupied smaller coastal regions, and at the time, Ceuta and Melilla were towns with poor immigrants from Spain. After World War II, with Europe's weakening empires and the imminent decolonization of the continent, calls for Moroccan independence grew louder. U.S. President, always have the U.S. somewhere in here. Always a game player. Mm-hmm. Franklin Roosevelt encouraged the Sultan of Morocco, Mohammed ben Yusuf, to seek independence. Ben Yusuf began distancing himself from the European protectorate structure by backing Morocco's independence party and advocating for the Arab League. The Arab League also supported the case for Morocco's independence. By March 1956, Morocco gained independence from France, But in true colonist fashion, this wasn't achieved without a fight. More than 1,000 people died in conflict between Moroccan nationalists and French government troops. Prior to the conflict, French colonial governments were not averse to putting down nationalist movements, with many demonstrations proving fatal. 
On one occasion, the French government executed six Moroccan nationalists in 1955. So once the French left Morocco in 1956, the Spanish did the same. The following month, Moroccan coastal regions that Spain annexed gained independence. However, in the process, Spain refused to hand over the cities of Ceuta and Melilla. Both cities remain in part of Spain even to this day. I swear, I know it was Morocco in Western Sahara, isn't it? When the process of decolonization doesn't get complete, that it kind of brings up some problems. And then Morocco's just like, oh, this one, this one's <laughs> mine, actually. This one's definitely mine before this whole colonization thing. So it's yeah, the no, same definitely. kind of stories are, are echoed across the continent. Moroccans believe the cities should belong to them never recognising Spain's sovereignty, whilst Spain's stance is that Spanish people were already settled in those regions before Moroccans were. Well, I mean, these guys were in there when, like, what was it? 14, 14, 15. Do you know what I mean? You can't just be like, well, my people were there. No. We got in there early. They're like, oh, but we we got in there so early. But actually, this is disputed as before Spain's arrival, Ceuta was an important Islamic city with more than a thousand mosques, 62 libraries, 43 educational institutions and a university. So how did all this appear? Did Spain just conjure it up, you know, in its mind? I am manifesting 62 yeah. libraries right now. No. That, oh. yeah. Morocco continues to see Spain's claims to ownership as a live museum of colonialism, which, yeah, it kind of is. There are quite a few examples. Yeah, that is strong. Isn't it? Live museum, of course. It's a live stream, something that's very commonplace these days. The country saw Ceuta and Melilla similar to Gibraltar. The Spanish government suggested to King Hassan II in the 1960s that the cities would be returned after Gibraltar's return to Spain. But dream on, hun, because this is Britain we're talking about. Mm-hmm. By the 1980s, patience grew thin as King Hassan wanted to set up a panel of experts to discuss the situation. However, the Spanish government didn't respond, refusing to re-enter negotiations. King Hassan's successor, his son, King Mohammed VI, renewed his father's request in 2002 for a need to enter dialogue with Spain. As you can see, they've had to continue fighting for generations. It's kind of like the long game, isn't it? It's like, oh yeah, well, hopefully, you know, no one will understand or remember the context. And then it will just hopefully just be swept under the carpet. And this is, like you said before, exactly pretty much what's happening with Western Sahara. Mm. And Morocco, it serves them if people just, you know, as we move on and generations pass, it becomes less and less, I don't want to say relevant, but just... Yeah, not, not as top of mind. Yeah, it's not top of mind for them. And so, obviously, there's no reason for people to fight. But that's just how, coming back to them. This is, this is basically territory yeah. karma. <laughs> This is like it's it's honestly I feel a little bit of that, but obviously it's still a terrible situation in terms of not being able to have ownership of a city that actually is within your country. Yeah, I mean I am. Yeah, when people say, "Oh yeah, we're for London becoming independent," <laughs> but at the same time, it would be weird if London was a different part, like was a different country. Yeah, that's <laughs> it's a bit like that. Just somewhere random, like I don't yeah. know Manchester or. Exeter. It's like, nope, we're not actually part of England. Nope. (laughs) We're our own nation. In 1985, Spain joined the European Economic Area, the EEA, the precursor to the European Union. Moroccans living in Ceuta and Melilla enclaves could only apply for Spanish citizenship after 10 years of residence, despite technically living in Spain. 
these Moroccans didn't want to apply as they didn't want to be foreigners in their own land. However, if they didn't comply, they were at risk of being deported. Sorry, so with so <laughs> People living here must have just been like, Re- really? Talk about identity crisis. With newly acquired EU membership came great responsibility of their borders. EU freedom of movement meant that Spain had to tighten their borders with other countries due to their new EU commitments. This, of course, would mean monitoring the only EU slash African borders seen in Ceuta and Melilla. Spain put a plan in place for sub-Saharan Africa to control immigration influxes from the rest of the continent. This is in part because Spain believed immigration to be a threat to national sovereignty and socioeconomic stability. And this could possibly be extended to the rest of the EU. Yeah, you know, freedom of movement is exclusive. And I'm not saying that because I'm salty, but, you know, they're just saying (laughs) it's only for us. It's not for you. Mm -hmm. That's the purpose of, you know, they have to now guard their borders because we don't want them having freedom of movement. That's basically what's happening here. So it does sit a little bit uneasy at times because kind of think about it is the EU also about protecting what the former European empires were and preventing those who have been exploited as sort of a historical consequence from tapping into these riches so it's a bit (laughs) definitely it's like Spain here is just contradicting itself Mm. massively because really what it's saying is we own these cities right but at the same time and you are our citizens, but also you're technically not yeah. because we're also a but like stick to one thing, one thing, please. Obviously, ideally would be leave these cities alone and return them back yeah, to market. You, you know what leave. I mean? Yeah. It would make it <laughs> yeah. a lot more clear for everybody. But it's just so yeah, bizarre. And I fully agree with you around the whole EU and everything. Because yeah. you are essentially maintaining something that was there kind of years ago, although it is completely wrong. Mm. It's also believed Spain built fences to prevent sub-Saharan Africans entering the enclaves rather than Moroccans. This is because nearby Moroccan provinces such as Tetuan and Naidor were exempt from visa requirements. Inhabitants were able to enter Spanish enclaves but unable to enter mainland Spain. Of course. You cannot say this bit here is Spain and Morocco or the (laughs) Moroccans. And then just say, but this bit, which we also call Spain, is definitely one you can't go into. That one's a <laughs> That's no. real Spain, yeah. No, yeah. <laughs> Again, we know that hostility towards Black African migrants remains to this day, with many already completing a treacherous journey across the Sahara Desert and placing their life and savings in the hands of precarious smugglers. And to give you an idea of these fences, these borders that have been put up, Melilla's border is 10 and a half kilometres long, with a double border fence, barbed wire, and 106 fixed cameras, with microphone cables and infrared. Ceuta's border is similar. Its border is just under 8 kilometres, guarded by 316 policemen, 626 guardia civil officers, 37 installed movable cameras, and technical equipment the same as Melilla's, with helicopters frequently surveying the area. So, this is kind of like a very similar scenario to American-Mexican border. And isn't it interesting um, to have sneered at, thankfully, the, the failed, you know, build a wall campaign in the United States. But actually, there's something like this a lot closer to home. And then also thinking in Morocco, between Morocco, I need to stop talking about Western Sahara, but Morocco and Western Sahara and the Burn Wall. Oh, yeah, like, of course. Like, <laughs> what? 
just what in case you haven't to... caught that um guys we we did an episode on western sahara so yeah have a little scroll back and check that out if you haven't already so there are basically three walls within morocco oh we yeah of course <laughs> yeah if we had to count yeah <laughs> three politically built walls within morocco because we can't figure out who's is who actually we know who's is who's but we just pretend it is the way it is it's the helicopters for me I, I just don't i'm like why is this necessary i mean the description makes it sound like a cold war era berlin wall and all for what like i what are you surveying <laughs> infrared like it just baffles me this rigid defence doesn't deter other Africans from attempting to cross the border into the EU. Um, some have attempted with makeshift ladders. Many attempts to cross these borders have unfortunately led to their deaths. And at the same time, did Spain really expect to build a wall around the EU? Like This is essentially like the EU being like, right, this is our, our wall here. And should the EU rather have encouraged economic development through trade and aid, Britain slashing their aid there. That's my shade mm -hmm. for today. <laughs> so those leaving for a better life would have better opportunities within their own countries rather than having to make these treacherous journeys. But no, we'd rather fund the helicopters, the policemen, the movable cameras and everything like that. And everything else. Also, just as a side note, these technologies in place in Ceuta and Melilla were funded by the EU with additional modifications in 1993 and 2005. At one point, the EU gave £200 million equivalent for fence constructions, assuming three quarters of the costs. I can't even deal. This was like video recorded. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> basically. Wow. You know that stereotype of people who voted Leave were about keeping the immigrants out? Well, <laughs> this is what the EU is doing, so... Mm -hmm. Spending £200 million on it. For a fence. Yeah. Well, it's a bit more structured than just a fence, but... Uh... No, but yeah, this isn't, this <laughs> yeah. isn't like a garden fence, but no. just like 200 million to keep, although you are occupying their country. Yeah, I mean, you think, is it really worth the hassle? The current situation is bleak and is enhanced by the ongoing migrant crisis. Many young men from African countries are willing to travel through to Europe at any cost, including their lives. Arguably, the EU is just as desperate to keep these migrants out. These young men are treated very poorly in these cities. A story in The Guardian outlines how, in the late 90s, a teacher in Melilla noticed that every night a young boy removed rubbish from the outside bins so he could sleep inside the bin without being disturbed. The teacher and his wife found out that the boy was only 11 years old, surviving on the streets since making it across the fence. Whilst the couple adopted the boy, they tried to get the council to help other migrant children living in deplorable conditions, forming a group called Prodine. However, the council didn't want to help the children, as that would encourage more to come to Melilla. Prodine is on Twitter as at Prodine.org. That's P-R-O-D-E-I-N-O-R-G. Very interesting content about this ongoing situation. So yeah, make sure you go and check that out. And obviously... The tweets are in Spanish, so it's Spanish. Um, Google Translate. Google is your friend. In a sense, this is what Nick Davis's article in The Guardian, see the link in the episode show notes, talks about. As though treating migrants poorly by denying them human rights will be a deterrent. Melilla has now become a means for the Spain and the EU and even Morocco to an extent to make an example of these people. 
The Council of Europe's Committee for the Prevention of Torture has graphic evidence of how other Africans who made it to Melilla have been treated. We're going to put a trigger warning here for torture and police brutality. So the treatment of Africans who have made it to Manila have been held in farm buildings with terrible conditions to the point where some sought refuge in abandoned cars or rubbish dumps. The police have been known to provide these people with water laced with tranquilizer. After this, the people have been wrapped in adhesive tape covering most of their body, including their mouth, so they can be delivered by military plane back to their country of origin. Literally like a return to sender package. And this just goes to show how human beings can be treated when they're viewed as subhuman. And within a place you call your own country. Yeah, it's, this is how badly they don't want people to, uh, to enter those borders, essentially. Mm. Human Rights Watch also have evidence that children travelling alone have been held by Spanish authorities in an old fort, where they faced brutality from officers and assault by older children before being thrown out into Moroccan streets. As Spain and the EU made the borders even more imposing, migrants began heading out by sea to the Canary Islands, but the EU ramped up coastal patrols, sending them back to Melilla. Officers shoot those who attempt to cross the borders, killing migrants. Morocco blames Spain, Spain blames Morocco, and there are countless stories of young men and their families, who obviously would have paid for them to get across, because quite often it's the case that they would look to find work and then send the money back to support their household. Yeah. So these families have also been swindled and betrayed by smugglers. Often the young men are sent to the streets to beg and face violence from the police. And many others remain stuck in the cities of Ceuta and Melilla, living on the streets to survive. It paints a very sad and desperate picture with more than 400 deaths recorded since the start of 2020 from an article taken in April of this year. And most migrants who reach Spain by sea now continue their treacherous journeys by the Canary Islands. So yeah, I hadn't heard of this story before. This was um, suggested by one of our listeners. So such an eye opener as to what's going on within these cities. Definitely. Like the last three episodes, this including that we've done, it just shows mm. you what is still happening. We've taken you from the, tw- the 15th century yeah. to 2021. Mm-hmm. And we have this still going on. Obviously, it's not very talked about a lot. It's not in mainstream news a lot. But there are some, there is quite, uh, there is quite a lot of information to be found. We've given you the Twitter of Prodeen who cover this. But yeah, it's quite shocking, actually. And, you know, I just didn't realise there was actually that land border. And this is the problem that kind of arises from setting up these man-made walls, fences. It just breeds violence. Yeah, definitely. And then now you have a situation where, where does it go? I yeah. know we say this, but like, what happens now does this just continue again and over the years something has to change but then it's unless both countries come together and have an agreement Mm. how does this end it doesn't yeah it's still looking unlikely that Spain would ever kind of give up those enclaves (sighs) this has been one of those but thank you for listening we are as I said at the beginning, coming to the end of season three, we've got one more episode, episode eight. Crazy. It's gone so quick. It never <laughs> feels like it when we're like, oh yeah, halfway through. And then it just like, oh, we'll finish another season. So mm. make sure you check us out on our socials. We're on Instagram, it's a continent pod, and on Twitter as it's a continent. 
and we will be looking for your feedback and ideas on the topics you want us to cover in season four as Chini mentioned this one was recommended from one of you lovely listeners out there so please we do listen we're planning it now or well not right not now, now but I certainly yeah <laughs> I just I, I, I could just say to be like I should not not now not now at some point in yes. the next few weeks so please send them send them send them yes and thank you to Marlon and Leif for supporting us on Buy Me A Coffee. You can do the same if you like by following the link in the episode description. So, yeah, we will see you in two weeks' time. See you in two weeks. Bye. Bye.